0: I'm Zoe. And I'm Chandi. And this is Bound by the Cloak. David Rothenberg read the script for the play Fortune and Men's Eyes in 1966, and it changed his life forever. Written by playwright John Herbert about his own experiences with incarceration in Canada, Fortune and Men's Eyes helped David to understand the criminal justice system something he knew little about at the time. The arts
1: have played an important role in promoting awareness of vital social justice issues, such as recidivism, which is the tendency of someone committing another crime. Recidivism is a huge problem in the United States, and according to the Prison Policy Initiative, 68% of people released from prison are re-arrested within three years. People on probation need to comply to 18 to 20 requirements per day, or they face the risk of getting arrested again. And 5.7% of the formerly incarcerated are facing housing insecurity. And lastly, the unemployment rate of the formerly incarcerated is 27%.
0: Since 1967, the Fortune Society has helped those who were once incarcerated re-enter the world by helping them find work, places to live, health care, substance abuse treatment, and more. It's grown from a small office in the theater district to an organization with a variety of programs and resources for men and women who have been released from prison. The Fortune Society has been doing all of this for more than 50 years. Now retired, David Rothenberg still volunteers his time with the Fortune Society.
1: Thanks, David, for being on the podcast.
2: Hi, thank you for asking me. I'm flattered.
1: Can you tell us how you got involved in
2: this world? It's probably the strangest story of all. I knew nothing about prison, literally. I mean, I my frame of reference were bad old movies where they were either escaping or rioting. And I worked in the theater. When I got out of the Army and came to New York, what I wanted to do is work in the theater, and I did. And I was doing well as a publicist, working on Broadway shows and off-Broadway shows. And a drama critic named Nathan Cohn sent me a script of a play called Fortune in Men's Eyes. Who knows when you read a script that your life is going to be changed as a result of it. But I read this play at night, sitting in bed, and I sent a letter to the playwright the next day and said I felt I had been locked in a in a room with four Cobras. It took place in a juvenile cell and a new kid comes in and gets gang raped. And while I didn't know anything about prison, I knew a good play when I read it. And this was powerful and it reeked of truth. And I went to Canada and Toronto where D- Don Herbert lived and found out, it, in fact, it was his story as a 16-year-old. He was the kid that was gang-raped on his first day in jail, and I was overwhelmed by his story and the play, and I had not produced anything at the time, and I gave it to different producers I know, and they all said, Oh, what a good play. You must be out of your mind. Nobody's going to come see this. And I was determined that, I don't know why, but I was determined that this story had to be told. And uh, in 1966, I started raising the money. It cost 15000 to get it on Off-Broadway. Today, it would cost about $800,000 for the same play. And I couldn't raise all the money. And I did something you're never supposed to do in the theater. I took out a loan against my savings to get the play on. And while we were in rehearsal with the four actors playing young men in a juvenile facility, they came to me and said they, they wanted to go visit a, a jail or a prison because if they were recreating Men in prison as theater, as actors, they wanted to get a sense of the walk, the look, the feel. And in December of 1966, myself and the actors went to Rikers Island. It used to have to go by barge to Rikers Island. Now then, they had, we were the first group that went over on a bridge. And we spent the day in the juvenile unit. And. That's the second epiphany, I guess, that I had because I saw these teenage boys, uh, 16, 17, 18 years old. They were being herded around. They were moved by stick. Guard would hit a stick and they'd move. I was aware of eyes, just the kids' eyes. And then we went into a dorm and I saw these boys, they were all just sitting on beds looking out. And They locked us in a cell. We each had the opportunity to be in a cell to get the feeling of that. The actors did. I went along with them, locked in a cell for an hour to get the feeling. What started to go through my mind, I mean, we were there as theater people. How do you validate this on the stage? But I kept thinking, whatever these boys were, and they were boys. They were big kids, but they were boys. You know, There's a difference. You can be 16 and 6'3", but you're still a boy. You're a kid. Whatever they did that put them there, how are they going to be any better when they came out? In fact, worse. It just seemed like an exercise in futility. That haunted me, and it haunted me for two reasons. One, because I saw it, and two, because I hadn't known anything about it and never thought about it. And I was angry at myself of the fact that I was a political social activist. I had been involved in all sorts of demonstrations, sit-ins and whatnot, while I was in college. And I was angry that there was this population That was invisible. So when the play opened, I must say to radically different reviews, the critics, nobody was bored by it. Some of the critics were so offended by what happened on stage and others would, I remember the village voice critic, Michael Smith said, anyone who's angry at this play should reserve their outrage for the mirror it shows of what's happening. About a couple of weeks after the play opened, a professor asked if uh, he was bringing a group of students, if they could stay afterwards and talk with the actors about the play. And that was right up my alley because I thought the theater should be a mirror. And, 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 and well, I, I had eventually developed a talk called an, as an agent for social change, theater as an agent for social change. And we invited the entire cast to stay. uh, I'm sorry, the entire audience to stay. And two of the cast members and myself came out and we talked about how it was putting the play together and asked for comments. And of course, the comments were very laudatory until a man said, This play's a lot of crap. It's exaggerated and I don't buy it. And from the back of the house, a man stood up in the darkness of the theater and said, Not if 20 years in joints like this that I spent, you couldn't stand watching what we do to each other and what's done to us. And I said, "Come down." And a man named Pat McGarry came down on the stage and talked about mesmerized the audience for an hour, talking about Rikers Island, Danamora, San Quentin, Florida chain gang. And I said, "Boy, you've been around." Afterwards, we went out for coffee and we talked for hours. And I said, Pat, you have to come back next week. People have to hear this. And he said, everybody knows this. And I said, no, they don't. You live in that world. I don't. And there's more of me's than there are of you. People don't know and they have to hear you. And then he said the most extraordinary thing that really knocked me out. He said, I did white time. You got somebody that did black time. And I said, we're talking New York. What do you mean white time and black time? This was 66. And he said, was segregated. And I said, He said, you have to get a black guy. I said, I don't know anybody that did time. You're the only person I've ever met other than the playwright. And he said, Listen, I'm working in a tailor shop and I have a guy that comes in there. We've gotten to know each other. We don't talk about it, but we read each other. And he came back the following week with an African American man named Clarence Cooper, who had written a book called The Farm based on his time in the uh, feds. And they, they were out of central casting because where Pat was flamboyant and outgoing, Clarence was intellectual and it was all inside and reserved. And they, it was almost central casting because of the contrast between the two men. But they loved, it's not that they loved it. An opportunity to speak about their rage of their prison experience was new to them. And they started coming back every week, every Tuesday night. And because I was a very good publicist, I called Cy Peck at the New York Times and said, this is a story. And he sent a reporter down and the headline was, The drama continues after the curtain falls. and It said that every Tuesday night, a couple of men, done time, talk about it. The following Tuesday night, half the house looked like a Sing Sing prison break. During the discussion afterwards, all these men got up and identified themselves, having either they had read the article or somebody told them about it and they came to see the play. And We all went for coffee across the street at the limelight. There were about 10, 12 of them. These guys were all... Staying out, they were almost all of them were in AA. They said sobriety kept them out of trouble and out of jail. And they started coming every Tuesday night. It was almost cathartic for them. They were going to their AA meetings, but they hadn't talked about their prison rage. And one of the things that kept coming out that I was aware of that they were working and they were living and they were making it, except that it was all based on lies. They lied about most of them had jobs with either fake names or lying about their past, and they were waiting for something to happen. Their housing, they were either living with mommy or the girlfriend signed the lease or the wife signed the lease, but they couldn't get housing. And I simply said, you all went to jail for punishment. When does the punishment stop? It was as if the system was geared to... And one of the guys said, it's for the rest of my life. And I said, it doesn't have to be. The other thing that happened while this was going on, this was the 60s at the height of all sorts of awareness, and you young uns don't know about this. It was a time when you didn't have to apologize for caring, and the 60s was pretty exciting because people were on the move. All the movements, as a result of the civil rights movement, the women's right movement began, the gay right movement, disabled people, Native Americans, everybody, Dr. King gave the blueprint and everybody, a lot of people were following. I started getting phone calls from people who had been in the audience saying, could you and some of those guys that had been in prison come and speak to our church or our school? And I was on the circuit suddenly from my theater office. I was running a little speaking bureau for formerly incarcerated men. Most of it had to be done at night because everybody was working and we were going around. And that was May, June, July, I mean, (laughs) we were busy and it was exciting but it was avocational for me. It was almost as if I had joined the Rotary Club or the Kiwanis Club. This was my not job effort for citizenship, if you will. There was no vision, no plan, but it became very intense. and I was getting friendly with a lot of these guys. Suddenly, everybody I knew had done time. What a turned around that was for me because everybody I had known before was in the theater or in politics. and I'm hanging out with all these guys and finding out that they're not very different. Their dreams and their aspirations aren't that different from anybody else's that I know. So, on a November night, after the performance, and we were going on and on, and people kept saying, What are you going to do about it? I said, Why don't we start an organization? We we could educate the public. Your voices have not been heard. I'm a press person. I can make radio bookings for you. And everybody's, No television, no television. They didn't want to be seen, but they would go on radio with, or not with fake names and speaking. And so, 16 people gave me $2 and I opened a bank account at Chemical Bank for $32. Chemical doesn't exist anymore. Chase bought it out. So I like to say fortune lasted longer than chemical. And my little theater office opened on forty six and Broadway in November of 1967. The Fortune Society opened and we published a mimeograph newsletter. Do you all know what mimeograph is? way before these machines. There was a little machine that you, you type something and then you put it on, a, on an ink-filled map and you churned it and pay, you could get 20 copies out with one turn. That was pre-Xerox machines. You'd have ink all over your hand. And we started publishing a weekly mimeograph newsletter, just telling people what we did. I tell you this, it was significant because the paper was so innocuous and it was four pages of mimeograph, but men and and eventually women in prison started hearing about it and asked for copies. And it was banned in Attica. The warden said it's revolutionary. It was so revolutionary. We, we announced where we were speaking and who was involved with us. But it was revolution in the sense that there would never been in an organization in which the, the participants were all formerly incarcerated people, with the notable exception of me, because there was no organization run by an inv- and the voices were formally. It was a new plateau altogether. All and I thought the rest of my life would be, I'd be working in the theater and, and this would be going on, cut out of my office. But four of the men agreed to go on the David Susskind television show, which played on Sunday nights on Channel 5 in those days. And the nearest equivalent that folks your age might know was, was Oprah's program, because it was, uh, Susskind would have six recovering addicts, six or women who had been prostitutes, six whatever, but was never able to get formerly incarcerated people because they all said that they'd lose their job. If those guys that were making it would lose their job. But we got four guys that agreed to go on. March of 68, and at the end of the program, David Susskind said these men are part of a new organization called the Fortune Society, 1545 Broadway at 46th Street. And I arrived at my little office the next day on the sixth floor, and the stairwell was filled with about 150 guys and you would have thought it was a prison break. And they thought they were coming to this thriving, big organization. They were looking for jobs and housing. And I'm sitting there with all my theater posters on the wall, not knowing what to do. I mean, I'm telling them, you know, stick around, we're talking. And yeah, 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 I'm looking for a job. So this tall white guy with a toothpick in his mouth walks over to me and says, you don't know what the fuck you're doing, do you? And I said... I don't have a clue. He said, move over. I stay out of jail by staying sober. We talk to each other. We drunks talk to each other. Maybe we can talk to each other. And Kenny Jackson right there literally became the first counselor of Fortune Society. He started talking to the guys saying, why don't we just stick around? Maybe we can do something. And later that day... Most of the guys didn't because they had their lives to, you know. Kenny was working with a fake license as a trucker. And later that day, a guy named Mel Rivers came in, bed-stuy, former gang kid. And I said, we don't have jobs. We don't have jobs. And he said, I'm not looking for a job. I'm working. He said, I just want to know what you guys are up to. And Kenny and Melvin immediately bonded. And they knew this is what they wanted to do. And I say that because the three of us, for the next couple of years, it was the three of us, new people came in, but we were, we knew this is what we wanted to do. And I... Realize, I yeah, you know, I had two careers suddenly. I was working on plays and I was schlepping around the country, you know, as a result of the television show. And I finally made a decision, and I, I I didn't leave the theater. I just stopped taking new shows as clients, and I forced myself out. But and most of our counseling was done as we were driving to Long Island or a speaking engagement in Kenny's uh, station wagon, and five guys who would come in and say, "Get in," you know. And most of the counseling was done in the car, going back and forth. And that's when I I started learning what they said before audiences and what they said in the car were very different. And I was getting an education on what prison life was and what people were facing and and what they were facing in and out. And I told you the story about being banned, uh, the uh, newsletter being banned, the Fortune News being banned. And what happened in 1971, there was a prison riot in Attica. The inmates took over the yard. You're familiar with it, historically, with that?
0: I remember no, something about it, a little bit about
2: it. I, I, you know, I tell people it's almost like talking about the Alamo. It was so long ago. The inmates took over the yard, and it was the most famous prison riot in American history. It was front page news and television lead story for days. They took guards hostage, and they were holding them there. Because the the warden said that the uh, our newsletter was revolutionary and wouldn't let inmates see it, a volunteer named Stephen Shostakovsky, who was a law student at Columbia, went to a law firm and pro, did pro bono work. And the federal decision is still on the books that uh, you can't stop people from reading something because you imprison them. And, and the guys at Attica thought we were this thriving organization because we got not only our newsletter in, everything else that was banned got in. It. And so a very intense conversation. In the mail, between me and two of the guys in Attica named Roger Champin and Herbert X. Blyden. they were obviously clearly political, very smart, and their letters were reflective of all the agony and the horror of Attica existence. And uh, when the yard was taken over by the inmates, the inmates said they didn't trust the state and negotiations, and they wanted outside people to come in, and they made a list. And I got a call from Assemblyman Arthur Reeve from Buffalo, and said, you ready to come to Attica to go in the yard? Uh, I was on the list as a result of the wow. correspondence. And I said, I will come up there, but I ain't coming alone. And Kenny Jackson and Mel Rivers and myself, we were flown by the state to Buffalo. State troopers picked us up. Kenny says, first time I've been in a police car without handcuffs. And we got to Attica and we were on the observers team during the uh, that weekend. It was on Monday that Nelson Rockefeller chose to send in troops and killed 33 inmates and nine go, I think it was, I'm not sure the exact figure. 39 people died, hundreds were injured. It was one of the most violent inflictions on c- citizens by the, the government in the history of the United States. And because this was worldwide front page news the Fortune Society is where the media descended. Uh, we had guys who had done time at Attica. We had been up there dur- in the during the uh, in the yard during the during the takeover. So suddenly, as an organization, we just exploded. We grew so big because so many we we were the story. We were the only place where the press could come. But nobody, there's, nobody else had a collection of men who had done time that could reflect on the, the fact that prison was a major cause of crime because people became, That's this is my interpretation, that uh, the high recidivist rate is a reflection on the fact that people with issues and go into an institution where their anger and their their uninvolvement with society is exacerbated. Prison almost reinforces any negative behavior. Anything positive that people want to do is almost under. And still to this day, there are programs. It's tough to change what you're feeling, especially when there's uh, so many people have dealt with the agony of their lives by resorting to drugs and booze. You know, they, the pressure is too great and you get high and then you get do stupid things and you go back to jail. That's And prison succeeds based on it's, it's the only institution that succeeds on its failures. Hospitals couldn't survive if they had that. So Fortune Society became my life. And what started with three of us now is an organization with a staff. I almost stagger when I go and visit 450 people. We opened a residence in 2000 called the Fortune Academy, known as the Castle. 65 men and women. And I say women because eventually women started coming. And the slowness was because of all the double standard about women anyway. But a couple of very brave women, Jeanette Spencer and Fran O'Leary, came in the early 70s, and their presence brought other women in. But when we opened the castle, it was because we had guys who were living in shelters and single room occupancy hotels saying, if I have to stay there one more night, I'm not going to make it. The drugs, the violence, everything there. And so uh, Kenny, Melvin, me, and a lot of other people, our couches were halfway houses for people who wanted to make it. I, I must have had 50, 55 men that over a period of four or five years that either for a day or a month stayed with me, including two teenagers who I went to court at four and had to sign papers and became their legal guardians at separate times. So the need for a residence was important. We started looking at halfway houses across the country. They were all run by either parole or correction, very regimented. And we said, if we're going to open something that's going to be staffed by formerly incarcerated people. And, and the castle, you all, um, we have community meetings every Thursday night. I'm about to invite you both. The best hour and a half you'll have all week. One of the most hopeful things because, you know, when you have a program, people come in during the day. That's one thing. When they're living in your residence, you, you get to know all the problems. And they have problems in the house, not only the problems of coming out of prison, but my roommate is, smokes and I don't. The music is too loud next door. And what we say to them is, this is tra- transition housing. You're going to get your own apartment. Use this as, to learn because when you move into your own building, your own apartment, all neighbors are not wonderful. You're going to have problems. How are you going to deal with it? Are you going to deal with it in the way you used to do deal with things? I got you back in prison. Or are you going to work at something? It's an exciting transition period for a lot of people. And some people are not ready for it. And many are. And many don't know that they are, but they're very excited about it. So we opened the castle and we now have four other residents that since the pandemic, because the, the city came to us during the pandemic and they were letting people out of Rikers Island. And they said, we have this building. can We want to put Rikers people in there. Can you run it for us the way you do the castle? And then a hospital opened a place and they wanted a nonprofit organization where they Particular pro- population of seniors who are not functioning, and we have a lot of seniors who are immobile, and have health problems. Suddenly, we're in the housing field. One of the most interesting things in the very early days of the castle, a guy named Larry White arrived. He had done thirty years in prison. He had, you know, he's hardcore, but very smart, very wise, and he had gotten very political in prison. And he said, "To survive in prison, I had to put on coats of survival." you know, metaphorically. He said, one after the other, to deal with this unreal world of violence, of no women, no children, of boredom, of no programs, of not dealing with why I'm here. He said, there are all sorts of things and you have to learn how to survive. And if you want to have the tools to, when you come out, it's very tough because you're so busy surviving in there that you don't get the tools of how to function out there. But he was wise enough. He didn't say I have to take off these coats. He said, I need your help in helping me take off these coats because I don't know how you all live out here. And we would on Thursday nights at our community meeting, suddenly we're having a talks about how do you deal with the crowd on the subway? Well, you know, for you and me who have never been in, people are going to push you and it's going to be rude and you get through it. If you've come from a world where if you get pushed, you have to push back because you're a target if you don't push back. Then we talk about the fact, but if you push back and you're on parole, you've just violated parole. You don't have the same. right. There are all sorts of rules. So how do you deal with relationships? We'd have guys who would, the first woman they would go out with, they'd fall in love they them. I'm leaving the castle, I'm moving with her. And six weeks later saying, Can I come back? Great sex does not necessarily make a great relationship. I mean, relationships are, are not talked about. How do you deal with little children who you've not seen on the street? I mean, there's so much. We don't bring it up. They tell us what the problem is. And with each new generation coming in, the problems keep repeating themselves. And wisest thing, one of the guys said, Somebody brought up something about not being able to get a license and he'll never get one because of his record. And Carl Duke said, glad you brought it up because the answer is in the room. There are at least three people here who have gone through what you're going through now. But unless you ask the question, you're never going to get the answer. But a lot of the guys are afraid to ask the question because it shows vulnerability or weakness inside and we have to explain that shows strength on the outside it's complex you know i've always said when people say how do you reduce crime how do you stop crime one person at a time because the system has rules that says everybody is the same and everybody has parole does it probation does it so you have to create an environment like the castle where everyone can be heard at some point not easy Everybody has different needs. Everybody has different backgrounds. A lot of people have families. Some people never had a family. I mean, you meet guys who were dumped at the foundling house at birth, you know, and never knew what a mother or a father was. I remember a guy named Bob Brown said that he never remembers the sun shining as a child and he never remembers being hugged. And then he said, you know, obviously the sun was shining somewhere, but I only remember being locked in a closet in a a training program or with a foster family. So his needs are very different than the guy who comes out, whose mother is crying and waiting and coming every day with cookies for him. Everybody's different. It's
1: undeniable that you have a certain privilege. David, right, that formerly incarcerated people don't have. So if you were formerly incarcerated, do you think you would have been able to start the Fortune Society?
2: You know, I long ago stopped with the discussion about I'm privileged because I'm white and male, i never been in prison. I say it. what I've had is opportunities. Privilege immediately separates me from everybody else that that I'm working with. Well, yes, I could have because lots of we get From around the country, guys who have done time have contacted Fortune, say, can we have a Fortune Society here? And we say, no, it has to be local because the locals are different, but come and spend a day or two with us and copy what we're doing. And many formerly incarcerated people have and have created too. But it's tough to get started. How do you get funding if it's going to be a paying job? Ours didn't. Fortune was lucky that it had my office rent free for its first three years because it was already there what was the group that, uh, a group of guys that wanted to um, encourage artwork for people in and out of prison. And I told them, contact different churches in your community that at least give lip service about being concerned on social issues and see if they have space that they would give you. And they got a place, they got a church that gave them a room. And so they ran free and the church was very happy with them and they grew and they, they ran as long as the two guys that started it were there, but when they moved on, they didn't prepare. I think one of the best things that happened with Fortune is I was the director for 20 years, and I knew it was time for me to leave because it was growing way beyond my skills. But we had a foundation, and there were enough people to take over and to build it. I could have never done what Joanne Page, my successor, has done. She and Stanley Richards, as a team, looking back, my best talents were grassroots organizing, and, which I didn't know that I had. I just did it out of desperation. And my media skills, the fact that I was an accomplished PR person and I had a population that had a story that had been not been told, That's the uh, formerly incarcerated was an invisible population in 67. We were all over the map once I got my hands on the stories. That was my skill. Yeah, so um, I, re- I rephrased your question and I sort of answered it.
1: You're a good PR person that way.
2: <laughs> well, when you've been around, you know, I've been around so long. Last week, I was invited to speak at a senior center on this. And I discovered as I talked to them, I was the oldest person in the room. Oh, wow. I, you know I always say now I'm the oldest person of every room I go into. But at a senior center, <laughs> I'm going to be 90 in this summer. One of the things that came out of Fortune is a lot of teenagers came to us. Different, very different population than those that have done a lot of time. And we started an alternative to incarceration program, which is very exciting. We have people that go into court and they talk to the DAs and the judges and try and get them to send them first offenders, mostly first offenders, but sometimes to come to us for six months or a year rather than going to jail. And it's a very different population. They're very spirited. A lot of them are very angry and a lot of them have reasons to be very angry, but they're reachable. And as I said, twice before we had an ATI program, I went to court, juvenile court, first time. 14-year-old Haitian kid named Harry LaCroix living on the streets. Somebody sent him to us. We were dealing with men coming out of prison. Here's a 14-year-old street kid. And he was hanging out with us. And he had a court date. And I went. Kenny and Melvin said it would be better that I go because I didn't have a record. And they thought that the judge would... We were new. We were in our first two or three years then. And they thought it would be better. I had new experience for me. I I was in the court in the... uh, judge's chamber, the judge, the probation officer, a social service person, and me. And I kept saying Harry was doing well hanging out with us. And they said, somebody has to be his legal guardian. I said, well, I'll sign the papers. So I signed the papers. And then they said, where's Harry going to live? And I said, well, he can stay with me till we find something. Well, you know, suddenly you have a 14-year-old kid who's sniffing glue and hustling (laughs) on the streets and Jeez. Kenny and Mel, when I got back to the office and they said, what are you going to do? And I said, well, kid will stay with me. And they said, what are you, out of your mind? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, who's a good kid? And I said, Harry, here's the rules. I brought him home. I, I had a living room, bedroom. I said, the couch opens up in the living room. That's your bed. And every day you open it and you close it. We're going to have dinner at this time. Your job, doing the dishes. Da, da, da. You'll go to work with me in the morning till we find a, a school plan for you. Uh, here's a key, blah, 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 blah it was astounding. The third day or fourth day when I came home, he was scrubbing the floor and I said, what are you doing? He said, our apartment has to be kept clean. What if they come and check it? I said, oh, they're wow. going to arrest me for for slavery. And he said, oh, <laughs> stay cool. What Harry taught me, he wanted the structure. He wanted that house. He wanted to be there. You know, He didn't live long enough. He died of an epileptic seizure, which broke my heart. He stayed with me for about six months before we found his brother and he stayed with his brother. And then, but as he would come and visit me every week. But we would go into a store. He'd say, Let me go in first. Watch what they do. So I, I was aware that black kids are treated differently, you know. So, but when when it's a kid that you suddenly care about, that I had that paternal instinct, that Harry was a kid that I was looking out for. I didn't want anybody I didn't want him to suffer that abuse, but he loved showing it so he could teach me what he had to go through as a as a black kid on the street. And so we were teaching, I like to say we were each other's teachers. And the second kid who I became legal guardian, Charlie McLeese, is because Harry called me one day and said, This kid is being sexually abused in the foster home where he is. And I met Charlie McLeese, and he was 15, and he stayed with me till we got him into a program uh, for several months. And you learn a lot, you know, in both cases, the kids they were kids. Charlie McLeish was 6'3", and weighed 140. Pounds. He was skinny as a rail. But he was he was a child in a man's body. And he wanted the structure, the guidelines. He had a lot of problems, a lot of problems, all drug-related. And we, we fought about that. But, you know, you can take a lot of classes. You can't... Classroom doesn't teach you that. I mean, living with a 14-year-old Haitian homeless street kid, uh, you learn a lot. When I retired and they had the ATI groups, and I said, I want to come back as a volunteer. And Joe and Bates said, I'm going to give you the toughest thing. Teenage group once a week. So I had these teenagers, 10 or 12 who were strangers uh, once. No, I had them twice a week. And, you know, you walk in the first day and who are you? You know, I don't look like them. I don't act like them. And... Uh, But if you show up all the time, suddenly the consistency makes a difference. And then it became a first name basis. And then I started getting matinee tickets for shows. First time I took a dozen at a time and it was a disaster because they left after the first act because they didn't have to stay at Fortune after three o'clock, even though it was a Broadway musical. And so I started taking Wednesday matinees, taking two or three at a time. We'd go first for, for soup or coffee or sandwiches. You know, they got to know me and I got to know them. And I always remember about a dozen years later, I was walking on the street. And this guy said, Dan Roderick, Derek Roderick. I said, Yes, who are you? He said, Joey Rodriguez, Joey Rod-. I said, You were a good kid. I remember you. He said, Yeah, remember we saw guys and dolls together. I saw Nathan Lane and nobody knew who he was at the time. And I said, Who would think, you know, we take it for granted going to a Wednesday matinee might be that's what folks do, privileged people or people with opportunities. I was taking kids to shows. But the, I remember taking three of the kids in Times Square. They raised in the Bronx, and they said at Times Square, they said, "Oh, this is where New Year's Eve happens." And I said, "Have you ever been there before?" And they said, "They'd never been in Manhattan before. They lived New in the New Bronx, New and our program was in the was in Queens." So, I'm lucky, though, aren't I? Oh yeah, very very much. Very much so.
0: That has to be an amazing experience to be able to well, help. Yeah, to
2: walk down the street and to, and to have a 28-year-old that you don't recognize who you knew yeah. as a 16-year-old. Hey, David. And a lot of them do stay in touch. And some are working at Fortune now. That's amazing. Andrew Burroughs That's is now working at Fortune. I met him as wow. a teenager. We did a play called The Castle. We, you know, The Castle, okay. our residence. And because I had a theater background, I... So we had the no- nucleus of a play, and I got four of the people to tell me their story, and we put it together as a play. And we did it as a one night as a fundraiser. And a producer saw it, moved it off Broadway, and it ran for a year and a half off Broadway. And since it was after a played, we started going to colleges with the play, and we were going to Bennington College in Vermont. And we had a big van with the four actors and myself. And Joe M. Page said, "Why don't we take some as a reward for some of the teenagers who're doing so well?" And five of the kids. Five of the ATI alternative incarceration kids went with us to Vermont in the van. I thought, oh God, five hours in a car with these little gangsters (laughs) is gonna We laughed and had so much fun. And one of them, Andrew Burroughs, who was in our alternative program, and I went to court with him the day that the judge said, You're all finished, fortune has done it for you, you're fine, you're free. And we walked out of court and Five years later, Andrew said to me, do you remember what you said to me that day? And I said, no, what, Andrew? What did I say? He said, we were leaving the building. We're walking down this huge street. And I said to him, turn around. And he turned around and I said, see that building? You're never going back there. And he works at Fortune now and he tells everybody that story. He said, you know what David told me? And he called me last year. He's married with a baby. And he said, I have a backyard now and I can play with my baby. That's the icing on the cake.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. It really is. So I'm, I'm curious to know, I mean, I don't know if it's still the same way now, but in terms of reentry at the Fortune Society, what's the process for when somebody leaves prison um, until, well, you know, they're kind of settled?
2: Yeah, well, if they come to Fortune, the first thing they'll do is an admission council will talk to them about what, what their needs are have you eaten today? Do you have food? Uh, do you, where do you live? What's your housing situation? And why did you come here? Is it, most say they want jobs, but if they want a job, there's a three-week program on how to deal with your resume, how to how to deal with your record and all that. But along the way, there's a lot of discussion about what do you want? And uh, are you ready to assume the responsibility? We also have a program once people get jobs, how do you hold it? Do you know how to show up on time? Do you know how to interact with people who have had very different backgrounds from you? There's all sorts of things that, and so a lot of we have an arts program, which is interesting: drawing, acting, uh, writing. It's a very healing process because people are are doing things that give them pride and they've never had pride before. I always remember when we did the play, The Castle, there's always a Q&A afterwards and the questions and the comments were pretty predictable. We'd we'd talk about it before how to answer this question. One night a man said, uh, you've had tough lives, the four of you, and you've uh, you've sort of overcome it. How does it feel to get applause? Nobody had asked a question like that before. And the four actors looked at me as if I had the answer. And Victor Rojas said, that's a question we're going to have to think about. And I said, Victor, you just told the worst things in your, that happened in your life. And he said, you yeah, know, these were the things I was always ashamed of. And now people are applauding it. And I said, they're not applauding that. They're applauding that you've overcome it. And how does it feel? And then he said, the only time I ever got attention in, as a kid was when I got into trouble. That's the only time grown-ups ever paid any attention to me. And it wasn't very nice. He said, so to get to be on a stage and have people listen to you, it's a strange feeling. We talked about that a lot, about how do you process that? How do you start feeling good about yourself? The thing about fortune, and I talk, talk about this a lot, the toughest thing the very toughest thing is to create an atmosphere of trust because you're dealing with a population that has been abandoned, abused, misunderstood. Give a adjective that's negative, and they've had it. And how do you get trust? And it varies from person to person. Some people you may never reach in that, but at the castle or at Fortune, you reach a lot if you listen. And there's a lot of mental issues, you know, a lot of damage from the. Uh, I mean, there's a guy that I'm I'm really friends with, but he did ten years in solitary. His button is pressed so easily. And I understand it, but I I, I want to wish him healing, but I don't have that power. I the only thing that I can do is to keep encouraging him. I, I said to him recently, you have 50 people that love you and one that gives you, you know, presses your button. Stop listening to the one that, you know, makes you angry. And he says, It's tough, it's tough. And I I know it's tough. It's I'm not in your skin. I don't know. There was a kid, a seventeen-year-old kid, about six-three, standing downstairs in L.I.C. Long Island City, screaming, just screaming. And everybody was sort of standing away from him because he was apparently having something. And I did something that I don't. Oh, I shouldn't probably even tell the story because I shouldn't rec- I don't recommend it. I went up to him. I'm 5 a half, a half. He's six-three, and he was screaming. And I looked up at him and I said, and he was rather startled that somebody came and looked up at him. And I said, you know, when the music's that loud, I can't hear the words to the song. And he looked down at me and he just walked away down the hall. Everybody came running and said, what'd you say? What'd you say? And I said, I'm not going to tell you. It may not work on the next person. But the next day, this kid tapped on my office door and I said, what? And he said, the music's turned down. Can we talk? And he came in, and I said, we can talk, but you know what? I'm not your counselor, and I'm not good at this. Talk to your counselor, and if that doesn't work, come back, and we'll find somebody that you can talk to. We have therapists there. I said, let's work it out. But if you want to be heard, you don't have to shout anymore. There's always somebody that'll listen to you. I was lucky because that's what he wanted at that time. He hadn't been heard. Everybody heard him then. My grandmother used to say about kids that came and visited, there's nice and there's not nice. That young man is not nice. Why, Grandma? He never took his hat off in the house. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't have opportunities to uh, like that. And she, she'd just shake her head now.
1: Jewish grandma?
2: Well, that one wasn't. That was the Christian Science grandmother. She had an enormous impact on my life. I wasn't a Christian Science, but I would go to Christian Science Sunday school sometimes. But her. My, my grandma Adelaide had a great impact on my life. When I was about five or six, I had what the equivalent of a flu was, you know, high fever as a kid. And I remember being in the bedroom with the shades drawn and people tiptoeing in and out. My grandmother came in, pulled the shades up, turned on the lights, sat and talked with me like nobody else would and kept telling me I should be outside with the other kids and uh, that I was one of God's children and that, and she, she talked and she made me laugh and When she left, I was fine. Now, I don't believe it was some some mysterious intervention. I think that we have within us the power to heal and we have strengths that we don't use and you create a climate to heal. And I tell that only because years later, I had very close contact with a doctor dealing with a, a relative who had cancer. And created an atmosphere for healing. And when he visited the Fortune Society, he said, This is a healing community, and your grandmother, her echo is here. And I I said, You've just been here five minutes. And he said, You know it when you see it. Healing is a very spiritual thing, and that uh, you have to know what it is. And he said, You're carrying your grandmother's uh, wisdom with you or insight. So, yes, I'm. I I don't you know I used to say when I got sick I didn't know whether to get chicken soup from my Jewish grandmother or read Mary Baker Eddy from my Christian Science grandmother, <laughs> but you you take the best of both, you know of all of them and you and you make it work. What fortune is still going through post pandemic problems at the castle and with the with the year we we were on Zoom for two years and what I said when you have a hugging culture and people are on Zoom we lost the damage is we're yeah. still catching up and at the castle we've. We're not there yet. We're still, we have a dining room where people would socialize and eat. But for two years, the food was brought to their room. The community meetings were on Zoom. Nobody was together. They weren't learning from each other. They weren't learning. We, and we're the exaggerated form of it. But I, I I, think getting at just commuting and going back and forth. People don't go to the movies anymore. They watch like Netflix. I have to go sit in the movie house. I'm alone all the time, but I go to the movies three times a week. I'm retired. I can do that. And I I go in the morning when there's no one there. I mean, why retire if you're not going to do it? And then I'm going to the theater today. I went last Wednesday, matinee. That's what I do, make my retirement work. You can come visit the the Long Island City office. That's like, somebody says like visiting a community college because we have two floors and, you know, 50 offices there and, and classrooms and all sorts of things. You're invited there too, but the castle is much more intense. The Thursday meetings, because you, you're right there here in the Cirrus. All
0: right. Well, thank you so much for, for doing this. We really appreciate it. Thank you.
2: You can tell I love talking about fortune.
1: You do, and the work that you do. I mean, it seems like you've had such an yeah. interesting life. So,
2: I, I'm retired, but I'm lucky that I have this in my life now. You know, I, I go to I go to Long Island City once or twice a week. I go to the castle on Thursday nights, and my phone never stops ringing with David. Can I talk? <laughs> <It's>... <laughs>
1: Thanks for taking the time, David.
2: Thank you so much. Bye. 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 Bye.
1: I'd like to thank David for his work advocating for the formerly incarcerated and for the Fortune Society's vital work in providing resources to the formerly incarcerated so that they can get back on their feet. You can hear David every Saturday from 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern on his radio show called Any Saturday on WBAI based out of Brooklyn, where he talks about theater, music of all decades, and politics and the criminal justice system.
0: We'll have resources on our website in the show notes for the Fortune Society as well as other organizations that do similar work. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, Google, Podcast Addicts. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, let us know. Leave us a review on Apple or Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Check out our website for more information on David and any of the other guests and episodes we have from previous seasons or this season. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Found by the Cloak.
1: Until next time.